0: Good morning. (laughs) Let's pray. God, thank you. Um, Your name is above all names. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus um, to die for us so that we can have relationship with you. And God, we're sitting here this morning because of that, and so we thank you for the power of the cross and the wisdom of God. And I pray that as we go through this text, um, would you just edify and encourage us from your word. Let it not be my words, but your word. And then I pray that I would just simply be a mouthpiece, that you would use me. And for believers in this room this morning, that they would be um, convicted and they'd walk out of these doors um, encouraged and edified and longing to be more and more like you. And I pray for those that are not saved, who do not have a relationship with you and call you King Jesus. God, would you do only what you can do and reveal their sin to them and the need of a Savior, and would they come running to you? It is in these things that we pray. Amen. Good morning. morning. My name's Chase. I am uh, the worship arts director here um, at Windsor Community Church, and I'm not going to lie, it's a little bit nerve-wracking being a few steps this way, and not having a guitar in my hand. <laughs> I feel like, uh, you know, Charlie Brown and Linus with his blinky. That's how I feel about my guitar. Um, and so uh, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Jason, if you could throw that up on the screen, um, I want to have some fun with this. Um, just kind of take a look at that, and you're going to see, might see some numbers in there. Um, But I just want to say, like, it's been awesome being in PLI. It's been um, super encouraging for me, and I'm grateful for the men who have taken the time to train up um, and develop leaders. Um, And really excited. It's a lot of reading, and it's a lot of vulnerable uh, discussion. Um, But I'm super grateful for these last two and a half years, and I've learned, and I've grown a lot um, in it. So those of you that know me pretty well, you know the reason that I always wear black, white, and gray. You know that. Uh, If you don't know me very well, it's because I'm colorblind, and I really don't have the energy or desire to mix and match colors, because if I do, I'll end up looking like a Picasso painting. (laughs) Uh, So up here, up on the screen, uh, each picture, there's a number, and some of you... Will be able to clearly see that number. Can you? Can you guys see that number? Some of you may not be able to see that number, and for some of you, you might realize for the first time today that you might be colorblind. Um, So these are uh, this is a colorblind test, and if you are if you can't see these numbers, welcome to the club. I can't see these numbers. I have I can squint and stare all day long, but I have no I have no idea of what those numbers are up there. Um. And I've taken these tests more than I care to. um, And every single time, it's the same result. No matter how hard I squint or stare, I'll never be able to see those numbers inside. The only way that I will be able to see those numbers is if God changes my DNA. And that's that's exactly what's happened to the church of Corinth. The Holy Spirit has opened their eyes to their sin and the power and wisdom of God. They've been born again. Their DNA has been changed, so to speak. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. So the church of Corinth, they were believers. They knew Jesus. Their eyes had been opened to the power and the wisdom of God. And Paul is writing to them to remind them of this truth. And that that it is Christ alone that saves us and sustains us, not man. And our identity is and will always be found in Jesus. So we need to do a little bit of context before we kind of dive in. And so the city of Corinth was a wealthy port city, and many cultures and religions came together. It was a melting pot, so to speak. It was a Roman colony under Roman law, And they worshiped other gods, and all of this made its way into everyday life. Does this sound familiar? This is us. In Acts 18, we see that Paul and a few others plant the church of Corinth, and fast forward a little bit, and Paul moves to Ephesus and gets word that the church is caught in all kinds of sin. They're compromising their convictions, and they're allowing the worldly culture of Corinth to infiltrate the church. If we look at the verses immediately preceding our text in chapter 1, we see that the church in Corinth is hanging their salvation on the coattails of these so-called celebrity pastors. They're in awe of their superior intellect and their mesmerizing speech. They start going away from Team Jesus and associating themselves with these celebrity pastors. If we look back in chapter 1, verse 13... Paul is going to mention two preachers, specifically Apollos and Cephas. Now, we don't know a lot about Apollos, but we can see that in Acts 18, 24 through 38, that Apollos, Apollos was, quote, instructed in the way of the Lord. And he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And Cephas, we know from John 1, 42, was the apostle Peter So we can make an educated guess that these were legit men preaching the gospel. The problem was that the church, the believers, were putting these preachers on a pedestal. They were associating themselves with these guys and finding their identity in this association. They were boasting that their guy was better, looking down on others that weren't in agreement with them. And this was causing division in the church And I read this, and honestly, I forget that I'm reading about the Church of Corinth. Like, friends, this is us. This is the American church. And I am incredibly guilty of this. One person that I absolutely love listening to is Matt Chandler uh, from the Village Church. Um, He has a really good way of, like, knocking you down hard and then building you up um, and blanketing you in the gospel. Um, and I try to listen to him every week, and I'm not going to lie, there are a lot of times that if he's not preaching that week, I'm super tempted to shut it off. If there's some other guy that's preaching, I really don't want to listen to him. I'd rather just listen to Matt Chandler, and there's a lot of times that I've actually done it. I've actually turned it off. I've been to churches where people will go through the music, and then a guy comes up to preach that's not the main guy and they will literally stand up and walk out of the door. See, we will exhaust ourselves trying to defend our tribe or our association. We get into arguments and we look our nose down at other people for not following our person. I think if Paul were to write this to the American church, it might go something like this. Each of you says, I follow MacArthur or I follow Piper. We tend to esteem the man more than the word. And hear me out, I'm the first one again to raise my hand and say guilty. The church of Corinth were believers. I am a believer. You are believers. We're going to heaven. Our security, our eternal security is safe. But along the Christian walk, the church of Corinth began to find their identity in God plus other things. For those of us who are saved and know the wisdom and power of God, do we sometimes find our identity in God plus something else? Are we boasting in God plus something else? Maybe it's God plus our favorite preacher. Maybe it's God plus our social status or God plus our bank account, or our gifting, or our works, or our toys. You get the picture. I would submit to us today that the power of the cross changes our values. God values humility and weakness because his love and power were made known through Jesus' death and resurrection. It also transforms us through the Spirit, Jesus' upside-down way of life becomes our own. It is only in Christ crucified that we find our salvation and our identity. Before we dive into our text, we need to read what Paul says in verse 17. And we put this on the screen. Verse 17 is, is Paul's statement. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. Of its power. And Paul is going to prove that statement and realign the church of Corinth and our focus today from man to Jesus in our text in four different points. The first point is the cross, verses eight, verse 18. The second point is the confusion, verse 19 through 25. Third point is the chosen, verse 26 through 29. And the last point is Christ crucified Verse 30 through 31. So let's dive in. The first point is the cross or the what. When we think of powerful people, who do we typically think of? What do we think? What are their qualities or their accomplishments? I know that my mind typically goes to the wealthy. Maybe the CEO of Tesla or maybe the president of the United States or maybe just generically someone who has a lot of influence over Many people. When we think of the power of God, what do we think of? A conquering king coming to obliterate and overthrow the government? What about coming in riding on a white horse? Maybe it's all the healings that we've been seeing in the book of Luke. Or maybe it's the parting of the Red Sea. That sounds pretty powerful. Or maybe it's all the casting out of demons. And hear me out, I'm not saying that those things are bad or untrue, but would we ever consider a cross as power? The cross and the crucifixion was loathed and despised in the Roman culture. The idea that this act would bring salvation to this world was unimaginable. And yet, it is the chief way in which God chose to restore relationship with humanity. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, writes this. says, Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What once was foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. The cross divides all of humanity into two camps, the perishing and the saved. And Paul says this in verse 18, he says, for the word of the cross is folly or foolish to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the perishing, the cross is weakness, but to the saved, it's power. To the perishing, the cross is foolishness, but to the saved, it's wisdom. To the perishing, the cross is eternal death, but to the saved, it is eternal life. It is the power of God for our salvation. In fact, the cross of Christ is the power of God that saves us in three tenses. It delivered us in the past from the penalty of sin, which is our justification, It delivers us in the present from the power of sin, which is our sanctification, and it will deliver us in the future from the presence of sin, our glorification. Nothing other than Jesus' death on the cross could save us. The cross of Christ is the great divide. Human wisdom and human power are at odds with God's plan for salvation. And I read this, And I ask myself, like deep down, I'm asking myself, why would God choose something so upside down to restore humanity? As I read the context and I read the Roman culture, the cross was low. And why would God choose something so upside down? How is the cross the power of God? And that brings us to our next point, the confusion. Paul affirms the truth that we just talked about by quoting Isaiah 29, 14. He goes back to the Old Testament to prove his point. He says this in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, we see this my ways are not your ways stuff played out all through the Bible. If we go back a few weeks and we look in Luke nine twenty-one through 25, it says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses himself? Josh last week used the term Uh, quoted C.S. Lewis as chronological snobbery. And this is so, for us on this side of the cross, it's very easy for us to be like, yeah, disciples, get with it. You gotta deny yourself. But in this moment, the disciples, in the position they were in on the other side of the cross, can you imagine what they were thinking in that moment? Not being on this side of the cross, how upside down and silly does this sound? Skip down to Luke 9, 43 through 45. It says this, And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said this to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And what's the next thing? But they did not understand this saying. They didn't understand it. It didn't make any sense to the disciples because of their finite understanding and human wisdom. Let's go back a few pages to Judges 7. Okay, a lot of pages. When God uses Gideon and his army to wipe out the Midianites. I don't know. Do some of us know the story of Gideon? It is an incredible story. The Israelites are overpowered and oppressed by the Midianites, by Midian. And they're crying out to God saying, God, help us. And God in his kindness says, okay. So he sends Gideon. He sends Gideon to rescue them. So Gideon has an army of about 32,000 guys, right? It's like, okay, I've got myself. I got 32,000 guys and I got God. I got this. And God says, too many men. And I can imagine Gideon in the moment, like, okay, I feel pretty confident here. But okay, God. So he goes to the 32,000 men, and he's like, those of you who are scared, I don't want to say this, but you can leave. And just like that, he loses 22,000 guys. His army was at 32,000 and gets dropped to ten. I can imagine Gideon's like, okay, this is not good, but got God on my side. We're good. I got 10,000 guys. Let's go. God says, still too many men. So what does Gideon do? He bases his decision on how these guys, these 10,000 men are drinking water. These these 10,000 guys are down there drinking water and 9,700 of them are drinking water the wrong way. (laughs) And Gideon's like, oh my goodness. All right, 9,700 of you, you can go. And then he starts maybe scratching his head or his chin. He's like, I've got 300 guys. Mind you, he has 300 men, and these 300 men are gonna take on a Midianite army of 135,000 men. Think about those odds for a minute. That's a lot. And also, no weapons. You're just going to have a trumpet, an empty jar with a torch in it. That does not seem like an army ready to fight. And so they surround the Midianite camp, and they blow the trumpets, and the Midianites turn their swords on one another, killing each other. And in chapter seven, verse two, there's something that God says. He says, as he's whittling down this army, he says, the people with you are too too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God wanted to make the odds so upside down that the Israelites knew It was all God and not them. Talk about, in all those scenarios, my ways aren't your ways moments. None of any of those scenarios make sense because of their finite understanding and wisdom. But God had a different plan that went far above our intellect and our wisdom. Paul then goes on to make some pretty sarcastic comments if we're looking in our text after he quotes Isaiah, it's almost like he's—it's almost like he's writing this, and it's rhetorical because it's a letter, but it's not. He's like, "Where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world?" Crickets. Paul is basically equating the wise of this world as the ultimate fools. As Paul continues to address the church in Corinth, two worldviews are pursuing salvation through two radically different lines. And we see this in verse 22. The Jews are looking for salvation through the military conquest of a conquering king. They rejected the message because they asked for signs or the miraculous. Nothing could be more antithetical to their request than their Messiah dying like a bloody criminal on a cross. The the idea of a crucified Messiah hanging on a tree was repulsive and unimaginable to them. On the other hand, the Greeks or the Gentiles were seeking wholeness through the elaborate construction of words or ideas or well-rounded theses. You see, knowledge was their pride. Knowledge was their idol. They were heirs to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And so the Greeks lifted up these teachers of wisdom and debaters as the celebrities of the day. And Paul in verse 23 says, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly or foolish to Gentiles. You see, the message of Christianity proclaims salvation through the death of Jesus Christ. The upside downness stands in fundamental opposition to the controlling mindsets of their world in Corinth and ours. And to the natural inclinations of our hearts that are bent towards sin. Friends, we are in perpetual danger of being seduced by the inferior wisdom of this world. Our intellectual pride and our arrogance find the world's wisdom attractive. It seduces us into boasting about ourselves and not in Christ. We think we can reason our way to God, but God says no. All who desire salvation must come to him through the cross. No matter how smart you think you are, God says you're a fool to do life without Christ and his cross. So we just celebrated July 4th. We're the land of the free and the home of the brave. We have so much to be grateful for. Most of us never go hungry. And if we need something, we'll just order it on Prime and get it the next day. Amen. (laughs) We say we're blessed, and we are. We are very blessed, and we should be grateful for that. But does that mean that God must love me more? or make me better, or set apart from others because of this? Absolutely not. This is a type of worldly wisdom that is attractive and seductive, and we must never find our identity in it. Paul then takes a 90-degree turn and makes it personal to the church of Corinth, which brings us to our third point. And if you notice in verse 26, uh, the, the third point being the chosen, I'm sorry. If we look in verse 26, he changes the point of view to second person, and he makes it more personal. He says this in verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to your worldly standards. Not many, I could insert you, were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. As we've seen up to this point, the message of the cross is unimpressive to the Jews and the Greeks. To them, it is not spectacular enough or intellectually persuasive. Paul, uh, people who demand such a standard from God and that he meet them on their terms, are too wise and too powerful to come to him by way of a crucified man on a cross. So we shouldn't be surprised or shocked at the kinds of people that God typically draws To himself, and who bow their knees at King Jesus. This is why Paul says to the proud Corinthians, You need to consider your calling. He asks them to remember who they were and where they were when Jesus saves them. Talking this much makes me thirsty. (laughs) I'm not used to that. Oh, man. All right, before we move any further, I want to I make a quick note of what Paul is not saying in verse 26. He isn't saying that none of the wise, the powerful, or those of noble birth will be chosen. He's simply saying that not many. Some will choose to ignore the call because of their pride, their worldly strength, or their wealth. But I would argue that those who come to Christ come in weakness and humility regardless Of their worldly position. I think that Mark 10 25 through 27 gives us hope in this. It says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and I would be too, because we live in northern Colorado, for goodness sakes. We're not poor. And he said to them, or they said to him, Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. In verses 27 through 28, back in our text, Paul lists five groups as the object of God's call to salvation. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. And he chooses the low, the despised, and the not, so the nobodies, to bring nothing things that are. And why? Verse 29. So that no human might boast in the presence of God. And then Paul seals up our text today in his argument of why preach Christ crucified without fancy words and wisdom. <laughs> by preaching the gospel brings us to our third point, Christ crucified, or fourth and final point. Paul has presented an argument that completely dismantles any claim to bringing about one's own salvation. And now he puts the nail in the coffin of any such arrogant thinking, noting that once again, that every good thing we have comes to us from God through his son, Jesus In verse 30, it says this, and because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He gives us four things that Jesus has became for us through him and he starts verse 30 by reminding us that the first and foremost, it's from God that believers are in Jesus Christ. Salvation is of God, not of man. And all praise and all boasting must be directed to God and every people. Salvation is in Christ and only Christ. And that it is the true wisdom of God, a Proverbs 8 kind of wisdom that he's speaking of here. Proverbs 8, verse 8 through 14 says this, All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. That is the wisdom of God. Paul then goes on from wisdom to righteousness. That we are delivered from sin's penalty by the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. It speaks to the great exchange. We give Christ our sin and he gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Then Paul moves on to sanctification or holiness that delivers us from sin's power positionally and progressively. Paul is speaking of the holiness that belongs to all believers by their union with Christ. It is the day-to-day looking more and more like Jesus's holiness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And finally, he moves on to redemption. See, the word redemption carries this idea of a price paid to purchase a slave. God has rescued sinners from their past, present, and future sin. And the price paid for each one is the precious blood of the Son of God. First Peter 1 Peter 1:18 through 19 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot sorry verse 31 brings this section to a close and once again Paul is anchoring his argument in the Old Testament he begins his argument in the Old Testament and he ends it in the Old Testament drawing from Jeremiah nine twenty-three through 24 and it says this This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. Friends, there is absolutely a place for boasting and there is a person to boast in. The place is the cross and the person is in the Lord. The prideful will refuse to come to God by way of the cross and be saved and the humble, on the other hand, will bow their knees to Christ and raise their voices to God and say, you did it all. So, where do you find your identity, believer? Is your faith and your dependence on Christ crucified? In Christ alone? Through grace alone? Or is it God plus fill in the blank? Do we truly believe that because of God through Jesus, we have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption Friends, what do you see? We were born apart from God because of our sin, living in a broken world and on our way to eternal separation from God. But God in his love and in his kindness sent Jesus, fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life, dying on a cross, raising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father, Fulfilling the law that we couldn't. So that those who confess their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus will be saved from the penalty of sin and be in right relationship with our Father. If you're here today and what I just said seems weak and foolish to you, I pray that you would ask a very real God to give you godly wisdom and understanding to see your sin and your need of a savior. Being a, a PLI graduate, um, and this being my first sermon, um, I'm really tempted. I'm really, really tempted to like, come at you with these really fancy words and this like immaculate outline. And it's not by surprise that I got this specific text because I'm a perfectionist, and I will sit there, and I will try to dial things in as much as I can. I'll critique it as much as I possibly can to make sure that it is perfect, and this here was no different. (laughs) I'm sitting here trying to impress, thinking of who I'm preaching to, and trying to impress, and all these things, and it's a massive temptation, (laughs) and in that, I'm reading and marinating in this text, and Paul is very clear that this is not what saves. It is the simple yet profound message of Christ crucified that saves and forever changes the eternity of people, not anything I can do. And you, friend, you don't have to be perfect to preach the gospel. Your confidence is in Christ. Your message is Christ crucified. It's not you who saves, and it is God alone who draws people to himself. So friends, rest in that. We have the easy part. This morning, I challenge us, let's hear and obey these words from the Lord through Paul. Let's not be like the church of Corinth and making much of man and tribes As Josh said last week, let's not flock to systems of power thinking that it's gonna bring about salvation. It is in Christ alone and through grace alone that we have the power and the wisdom of God. I said this at the beginning and it's worth repeating. The power of the cross changes our values. God values humility and weakness because his love and his power were made known through Jesus' death and resurrection. It also transforms us through the Spirit. Jesus' upside-down way of life becomes our own. It is only in Christ crucified that we find our salvation and our identity. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that it is true. and that we are very much sinners in desperate need of grace every single day, that we always have this temptation of finding our identity in God plus something else. And you've made it very clear here that it is only Christ crucified that we have our salvation and our identity. So God, this morning, may we cling to that. Those of us that are in Christ, would we cling to the cross? For it is our only hope for salvation and our only boast in this world. And for those those of us who this seems weak or foolish and upside down and it doesn't make any sense, would you open their eyes through your power so that they can have wisdom of God, they can have righteousness, they can have sanctification, and they can have redemption, that their eternity would be forever changed through you, and they would say, God, you did it all. It is in your name that we pray, amen.